great. So uh, I'm here. So uh, we're so glad you guys are here with us today. Uh, it's a beautiful day. You could be a million other places and you're here with us and it's not lost on us. So thank you for being here with us today, especially if you're new. We're so grateful that you're here. Stop by the Welcome Center on the way out. We have a gift for you. Even if we never see you again, we're just glad you're here with us today. Uh, fair warning, I have been sick like almost everybody all week long, dealing with sinuses. This is the longest period of time I'm going to talk all week long. So if I start coughing in the middle of it, uh, I'm not contagious, number one. Number two, uh, just talk amongst yourselves until I get better, okay? So just a little bit of warning. Uh, a couple more announcements for you guys. Uh, parents, we've talked about this a few times, but today is the last day and tomorrow, CIY Superstart. Fourth through sixth grade, it's an overnight um, experience for if you have a fourth grader through a sixth grader. My kids are going. I'm super excited. I'm going to be there with them. Uh, that's coming up in a couple of weeks, which means you need to sign up. It's also an overnight thing, which means parents, you get rid of your kids for a night. And so you need to go on the app and do that today. Now, I'm going to leave here from the stage and go to their kids' classrooms and tell them they have to go. So just know it's coming. They're going to ask to go. So be ready for that. Uh, but that is coming up in a couple weeks on the app. Make sure and sign up for that if you haven't. Uh, we just got back from Guatemala last week doing a planning trip. Uh, we are going back to Guatemala uh, over the summer. So July uh, 15th through the 20th, uh, we will have a meeting about that on March 10th. We can only take 10 people, so spots are limited. But if you want to go with us to Guatemala and see all the amazing work that we're doing down there, uh, make sure and go to that meeting on March 10th. Now, Easter is only about four weeks away, and so we've been working and planning on what we're going to do this year for Easter, and so I'm happy to announce that we are going to be going back to Paraket Springs uh, for our Easter services. If you haven't been a part of that, we used to do it every year, and then a little thing called COVID happened and messed everything up, but we're going back there, um, and so we're super excited. There'll be plenty of space for you to invite your family, friends, and neighbors. Uh, it'll be a full service, full kids programming, youth programming. It'll basically be Journey at Paraket Springs. We're going to do one service that day, so it'll be everybody. Uh, and all the services together uh, to worship. Now, that's also spring break week. And I realize some of you guys love spring break, all right? And you're like, forget church, I'm going to the beach. And so uh, we will have a service that Thursday um, for people that have to volunteer on Sunday. So you can Easter service. Also, people going out of town or have family plans on Easter. We'll have a service that Thursday. And then after that service, we're going to have a big egg hunt and carnival out in our grass lot uh, behind the building. So uh, make sure you go ahead and make plans. Think of family, friends, and neighbors. Uh, the cool thing about Easter, if you guys don't know this, almost everybody will say yes to going to church on Christmas and Easter, all right? And so it's an easy invite if you have somebody you've been wanting to invite to church. Uh, and because it's at Paraket Springs, we get super excited about it. Nathan will be leading worship that day. Um, and so we're super excited about that coming up. Now, uh, we are wrapping up a series today. So if you've not been a part of this or you've missed it or you've <laughs> there's that cough. Missed a couple weeks. Um, we are wrapping up today, but I'll tell you where we've been. This whole series has been based on love. And specifically, the love of God and defining that and trying for me my best way possible to articulate the love of God that he has for us. And so we've talked about the idea of what love actually is and the way it's biblically defined. Uh, we've talked about this idea of what it looks like and how God demonstrates his love. And so what I'm going to do as we end this series is I'm going to do my very best to articulate in a way to make it personal for each of us so that we can fully understand. Now, it's important to remember that whenever we read the Bible and we see these truths from God, that these are truths that are universal truths. These ideas are not just for us as individuals, they're for all of humanity, um, but for, for us to understand that they also apply to us. 
And so it's this idea that if it's true for me, it's true for others. And if it's true for others, it's also true for me. And so last week, if you missed it, we focused on this one verse, and then we kind of explained what this kind of phrase meant. And it started with this one line, but God. And what Paul does, and we tried to discuss last week, was this idea that what Paul is doing in this writing to this letter to this early church in Rome, what he's trying to do is say that everything that you think you know about yourselves and humanity and creation and all of these things, and maybe even the way that religion or Christianity has been defined for you, what you have to do is create this own new category and realize, but God is something else something that transcends even some of our understanding. And so he writes this beautiful letter, and towards the end of this chapter, and he didn't write in chapters, we kind of broke it down in this, but in this letter, in this same thought, towards the end, he says this, in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say about what wonderful things is these? So, so what he's um, talking about, if you read the rest of that chapter, which I encourage you to, is he's talking basically through the gospel, the understanding of God's love for us and what God has done for us, and he's kind of explaining it. So he's saying this is wonderful things. So then he says this, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us and is sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Now, this is an amazing piece of writing. And the reason this is such a powerful piece of writing is when you kind of break it down, what you see is this understanding of God's love, and it's defined in terms that God himself was willing to pay the price to make us and him right. And so he's willing, because of his love, to basically do all the heavy lifting And and then there's this line right at the end that that maybe we miss sometimes. And it says that he does all of this. And then even above and beyond this, I don't know if you caught it, at the very end he says, and here's Jesus at the right hand of God pleading on our behalf. The other word that could be used here is advocating on our behalf. And so not only has all the work been laid out for us, but there's this picture that even now, even in all of this, that Jesus is still pleading for us, arguing for us, in our case, to be made right with God. And the question becomes, well, who would do that? Hans Kung, uh, who you've probably never heard of, uh, wrote a book one time on being a Christian. And this, this section that he writes is one of these sections that when I read it, it just really gets to me. And he says this, The absolutely unpardonable thing was not his concern, speaking of Jesus, for the sick, the cripples, the lepers, the possessed, nor even his partisanship for the poor and humble. This was not the problem. The real trouble was that he got involved with moral failures, with obviously irreligious and immoral people, people morally and politically suspect, 
So many dubious, obscure, abandoned, hopeless types existing as an eradicable evil on the fringe of every society. This was the real scandal. Did he really have to go so far? What kind of naive and dangerous love is this? We talked last week about this idea that when Jesus is here, he has all these encounters, which is our next series, talking about these encounters that Jesus actually has. And he has all these encounters. In the Gospels, are these stories of these encounters that Jesus has with people, people who were nothing like him. And yet in all of these encounters, we we see Jesus' willingness to step into our world, into our lives, into our mess. To step into the world and the mess that we've made up. To step into our lives and the mess that we've made of them. To step into our brokenness. To understand fully the degree to which God is willing to go to show that he has not given up on you and I, even in all of our brokenness. That there is a hope even in the most unsettling and unglamorous of circumstances. And it got me thinking that I think that most of us, like, we believe that, like, or we say we believe that, and we want that to be true. But can we just be real honest? Sometimes that's really hard to believe, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, but I know me, Right? Listen, I, I try to be the same person when I'm here as everywhere else, okay? But there's things you guys don't get to see, okay? There are things that I do, attitudes that I have that I would not show you from this stage, and I'm sure that you could say the same of yourself. You're on your best behavior. We discussed this a few weeks ago. Here. And yet we know who we are and to actually believe that God still truly loves us cares for us, is willing to step into this mess. And then on top of that, as Paul writes, that Jesus is still advocating for us even through all of that. I got a lot of quotes today, so just fair warning for you guys, because I figured not just my words, but the words of men and and women that have inspired me over the years. So Carl Jung once said this, the acceptance of oneself is the essence of the moral problem and the epitome of a whole outlook upon life. He goes on to say that I feed the hungry, that I forgive and insult, that I love my enemy in the name of Christ. All of these are undoubtedly great virtues. What I do unto the least of my brethren that I do unto Christ. And so this is the idea of us acting upon our faith. But then listen to how he changes it. But what if I should discover that the least amongst them, the poorest of all the beggars, the most impudent of all the offenders, the very enemy himself, that these are within me? And that I myself stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness. That I myself am the enemy who must be loved. What then? We hide it from the world, refuse to admit ever having met this least among the lowly in ourselves. Paul, a chapter earlier, will set up this idea we've talked about. That it's like this internal struggle that we have that we know what we should do. And, and yet we keep just doing these other things. And, and so we have this thing with inside of all of us. Sometimes the hardest person to forgive is yourself. Sometimes the hardest person to believe in is yourself. Sometimes the hardest person to believe that maybe this love of God could really be true is ourselves. 
And so we try to convince ourselves. We try to earn it. We try to do all of these things to make it seem like it makes sense. Some of us, we're wrestling through this. We're wrestling with our faith. We're wrestling with our identity. Now, when we talk about wrestling through our faith and our identity, um, we think of this in negative ways. We, we think of someone that's wrestling or struggling in their faith. Like in the church world, we say, oh, well, they're struggling with their faith. And we think of these in negative terms. There's this interesting idea that's presented early on in the story. That there's a group of people, a nation, that God chooses to be kind of his representatives of what a people are supposed to be like in this relationship that God wants for all of his people. Now, if you've studied the Bible, you know that this group of people will eventually be known as Israel, the tribe of Israel. Now, the story, and we've talked about this before, of how they get their name is actually fascinating. And it's about one man who has this experience where he wrestles on his journey. His journey, by the way, of moral failures of great significance. And he's wrestling with God. And at the end of this story, all of a sudden, God just kind of has this moment where he says, your name is no longer this. Your name is Israel, which means, if you don't know, those who struggle. The very name for God's people that he gives is the name of struggle. That God is not like unaware of this, these problems. God calls us to stop hiding and come openly to him. He knows the struggle. He knows the wrestling. We see images of God being the father who runs to the prodigal when the prodigal himself is not even worthy enough to come back to the father. We see language in the Bible of God weeping over his people as they are lost and broken and hurting many times because of choices that they've openly made themselves. Did you know that the first question that God asks man in the story that we get in Genesis, it's a fascinating question. So, so Adam and Eve of their own doing have, have struggled and suffered and they've allowed sin to enter into their lives and into this world. And so all of a sudden they feel the nakedness of their shame. They know that are no longer worthy and they feel it in the deepest core of who they are. And do you know what they go and do? They run and they hide because that's what we do. They run and they hide. And so God, he comes down like he does every day to walk amongst them. And the question that he asks them is, where are you? Now, I've studied this and what I've become convinced of is this was not a location question. He knew exactly where they were. This was a heart question. Where are you? And I think it's the question that he still asks us today. Where are you? And just like Adam and Eve, we hide in our shame, we hide in our guilt, we hide in this uncomfortableness, because we know there's something creeping around in there, and it's uncomfortable, and sometimes it's heart-wrenching to deal with it. Simon Tugwell, in his book, The Beatitudes, says this, and so we, we either flee our own reality or manufacture a false self, which is mostly admirable, mildly presupposing, and superficially happy. We had what we know of ourselves or feel ourselves to be, which is assumed to be unacceptable and unlovable, behind some kind of appearance which we hope will be more pleasing. 
We hide behind pretty faces, which we put on for the benefit of our public. And in time, we may even come to forget that we are hiding and think that our assumed pretty faces is what we really look like. So what do I say all this? Because we're talking about love, and now we're all like, well, we feel bad about ourselves, okay? Why are we saying this? Because here's what you have to know. Because God loves who you are, whether you like it or not. God doesn't just love some future version of you. God doesn't love some version of you where you've got it all figured out. And so God calls us, as he did Adam, to come out of the hiding. He wants us to understand that no amount of spiritual makeup can render us more presentable to him. He loves you. And he calls us out of this self-hatred, the self-deprecation, and to step into something new. Last week we discussed that this idea, if you missed it, of Charles Cooley's looking glass theory. And the simple idea is that, that we perceive ourselves the way that we think others perceive us. And so I think what's so shocking is that so many of us in the church, if we're real honest, kind of have this disdain for ourselves at times. We don't like ourselves. And yet we are the disciples of Jesus. We talked about this word that we keep getting referred to in the New Testament about the people that follow Jesus, and it's the word beloved. And simply the word beloved just simply means those who are dearly loved. We live in awareness of our belovedness as the access through which the Christian life revolves. To understand that you are loved. This was the good news. This was the gospel, that God so loved the world, which happens to include you and me. But yet, many of us include, continue to cultivate such an artificial identity that the liberating truth of our belovedness fails to break through, and so we keep playing a game. Some of us, we become grim, fearful. Some people become legalistic pointing out the faults and flaws of others to make themselves feel better. We hide our pettiness and wallow in our guilt. Some of us in our Christian journeys, we huff and we puff and we try to impress God to earn the love and live the good news in a joyless fashion that the world around us does not no longer see this as good news. Let me ask everybody a question that was once asked of me. Are you busy trying to prove that you're loved rather than resting in the fact that you are loved? That you're too busy trying to just prove that you've earned it, you deserve it, you're worthy of it. So you try to prove it and prove it and prove it rather than just resting in the fact that you are actually loved. John Egan once said this, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is an illusion. 
Last week we talked about the Father's love. And the Father's love is this idea that, that Jesus refers to and we see the writers refer to over and over and over again. This idea that this Father's love for us and a perfect Father and what a Father should be like. Because I realize some of us don't have a great image of what a Father is like. But it's this idea of a Father's love and us kind of embracing that love. But there's this interesting little exchange in the book of Isaiah in chapter 49. And I love it because in this idea, we get a different image that, that I hope that we can fully understand. And so the prophet is trying to encourage the people. They've messed up time and time again. And so he's writing kind of this hard stuff for them to kind of work through, uh, but it's on all down. And so he's trying to remind them of some things, but, but they're not feeling it and they're feeling bad because they realize what they've done and who they are. And so in, in the middle of uh, chapter 49, it says this in verse 14, but Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Now let's just pause real quick. Have you ever felt like that? Like you hear all this talk from people like me about how much God loves you. And then you think about where you are and what's going on and the situation in your life, the season you find yourself in. Or maybe it's just the culmination of everything that's led to this point. Maybe this year has been a rough year for you. And so I feel forsaken. I'm surrounded by needs. I'm surrounded by tragedy. And and so how how does God respond to this cry that these people feel forsaken? They don't feel the love. Here's what he says in verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Now, the reason I love this verse is because so many times in the Bible, what what we see is this reference to God's love from a simply masculine standpoint. And it's there, and it's true, but we dare not forget that God transcends our understanding of even male and female, mother and father. And so from time to time, what you see littered throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, is not only this referral to this masculine idea of God being the father, but you also see this kind of compassionate side of what a mother's love is like. And if I'm being honest, when we think about a mother's love, a father's love is one thing. I love my children, but when they find themselves hurt or they're being irrational, I'm like, just rub some dirt on it, go for a walk, you're going to be fine, right? But what about a mother's love? A mother's love is different, isn't it? You ever think about this? Like, you ever seen those videos of, like, like these you see, you can Google it later, like moms lifting cars, right? They can't lift 15 pounds normally, but all of a sudden their child is in danger, and all of a sudden something comes from up from within them, and they're able to lift up this car, a mother's love and the depths in which they're willing to go to protect and to love their children. And I don't think it's just moms. I think this is like ingrained in in creation. A few years ago, uh, we lived in a neighborhood over here called Mallard Lake. And if you live over there, you know that there's goose poop everywhere. And there's only goose poop everywhere because there's geese everywhere. So I'm going for a run kind of around the lake. (laughs) And all of a sudden, I realize that that there's somebody staring me down. And what's staring me down is this goose, all right? And this goose is just staring at me. And I don't know what's going on. I'm not bothering it. Leave me alone. And so all of a sudden, what I realize is that mother goose wasn't by herself. There were some baby geese, and I was too close, and she viewed me as a threat. And this goose puts her head down 
straight out like a bayonet, and she lets out a sound that I can only be described as from the pits of hell, and she just comes right at me, full force, and she is not letting up, and I'm running, and she's running after me, screeching and hollering, and I know that's a silly thing, but isn't that what a mother's love is like? A mother's love is one that's not only physical and emotional, but it's unconditional. A mother hears the cry of her children in a room full of children and knows it's her children. And so what God does is he takes this image and he says, this is what I'm like. And so all of a sudden you've got this new image of not only God the Father and what a father's love is like, but also of a mother. And and then he takes it even a step further. He says this in verse 16. See, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Now, this illustration is he's referring to God's people through Israel, but we are now God's people through Christ Jesus. And so these words transcend not only the original text, but also extend to us. Now, when you first look at this, it seems like a lovely little moment of devotion that God all of a sudden has his, (coughs) there it is, (coughs) has us engraved on the palm of his hands. But you have to understand the cultural context of this. In their culture, it was very common that if you were a servant that belonged to a master, the way that they would identify you oftentimes is they would put a marking on your hand. And so the way that you knew who you belonged to was you could look down at your hand and see who you belonged to. That it might be engraved on the palm of their hand. But that's a servant to a master. And in this text, what God is saying is, I, as the master, have you engraved on my hand. A master would never put a servant's name on their body. But that's what we have here. And what's even more fascinating is the word that's used here in Hebrew. It's not just like a tattoo. It would actually be the word that would be used that it was chiseled, engraved onto his hand. Centuries later, there will be a man named Jesus. And he will have an encounter with a man named Thomas after the crucifixion. And Thomas doesn't believe that this is Jesus. And Jesus sticks out his hand and he says, look at my palms. How far the father was willing to go. The master was willing to go. The mother's unconditional love. The father's strength. At the cross, Jesus Christ proves once and all God's love for you and for me. 
This is what Frederick Buckner says. We are children, perhaps at the very moment when we know that it is as children that God loves us. Not because we have deserved his love and not in spite of our undeserving, not because we try and not because we recognize the futility of our trying, but simply because he has chosen to love us. We are children because he is our father and all our efforts fruitful and fruitless to do good, to speak truth, to understand are all the efforts of children for all their porosity are children still that before we loved him, he loved us as children through Jesus Christ. And so Paul, the greatest missionary, the greatest starter of churches, he's got a past. He's got some stuff. And to be honest with you, as we study the writings of Paul, we still see that he struggles from time to time with stuff because we all do. And so Paul, he wants to take this idea of but God and who can separate us, who can condemn us. But then he wants to show us the depth to which this actually goes. And so here's how he finishes out that chapter. Verse 35, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ Jesus who loved us. And I am convinced, now this is Paul, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a line in there where it says um, this overwhelming victory. Do you need a victory? Some of us do, don't we? You've been beat up, spit out, the world's gotten to you, the season's gotten to you. And so he says, here's your victory. Your victory is, is to know that in spite of all of that, what you've gone through, what you have to go through, he loves you. Other translations use this word, conquers. And I love this word, this idea of conquering. Now, we have to understand the context again. Do you have to remember who this was written to? And this is a group of people living in Rome <laughs> under the rule of the Roman Empire. <coughs> they have been conquered time and time again. They don't even know what winning looks like. And maybe some of you, that's where you feel. You've been conquered. Deep in your soul. But Paul says, because of this one truth, because of this truth, not only for him, not only for those people, but for us, that you are loved and you are loved by God and there is nothing that can separate you from that love, you now have victory. You are now ready to conquer. 
And let's be honest, we have a lot to conquer, don't we? When we look at our lives, for some of us, when we look at our families, our community, the world, there's a lot that has to be conquered. And we have to let love be what leads us. I want to finish with this quote, and then I'm done, because I have to be, and I'm about to start coughing again. But this quote by Brennan Manning is one of my favorite quotes of all times, and here's what he says, and it's not going to be on the screen, I'm just going to read it to you. Your Christian life and mine doesn't make any sense in the depth of our beings until we know, until we believe that Jesus not only knows what hurts us, but knowing seeks us out whatever our poverty and whatever our pain. His plea to his people, come now, wounded, frightened, angry, lonely, empty, and I'll meet you where you live. And I'll love you as you are, not as you should be, because you may never get to where you should be. Do you believe this? With all the wrong turns you've made in the past, the mistakes, the moments of selfishness, dishonesty, and degraded love, do you really believe that Jesus still loves you? Not the person next to you, not the church, not the world, but that he loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity, that he loves you in the morning sun and in the evening rain. Without caution, without regret, without boundaries, and without limits, that you are loved. Let's pray. Father God, we love you, we thank you, we thank you for your love, that even in these last three weeks, I don't know if I can fully articulate in a way um, that encompasses the grandness and the greatness of it. And so, God, my prayer is that right now that you can do what I can't do and that maybe you speak to some of us in this room that just needed to know that. And through that still, small, quiet voice, you just whisper in the depths of our soul that we are loved. And God, that not only do we realize that just through the words we read and the words we say, but we feel it and we experience it not just in today, but in tomorrow as we walk out into the sun and we see the goodness of all that you are, that we experience it, that we see it through our family, we see it through our friends, we see this love that permeates all of creation and knowing that you are the author and the creator of it, that in the depths of who we are, that we know that we are loved. And so as we sing these songs, may we believe these words to be true. May we know, may we live in a way, in a posture, in a life to embrace, to hold on to this love. So Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for who you are. In your son's name we pray. Amen.